Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. I am Tim Masso here with the car czar, Alex Dykes. Alex, we're talking about new cars. We're starting off with a big one, maybe a car and a half, but it's a truck, the Escalade IQ. Where does it sit in the constellation of Escalade models? Yeah, is it a car or is it a truck? Uh, you know, a lot of people would now say it is definitely a car since it is the first unibody Escalade ever conceived. Uh, this is the new full EV Escalade, the Escalade IQ. Basically, what they did was they took a Hummer EV, made it even bigger, if you can imagine that, likely also heavier than an S uh, than the Hummer EV, and of course, turned it into a three-row EV rather than a pickup truck. So that's essentially what's going on here. They'll start at $130,000. They're claiming well over 400 miles of EV range. Admittedly, that is not going to be on the highway. We'll talk about that at some point in this video, I'm sure. It's going to be very opulent on the outside. It is going to be the widest Escalade ever conceived. It's actually wider than the Hummer, if you can believe that. And the Hummer is already fantastically wide for a pickup truck. So wider than a Raptor, wider than a TRX, wider than a Hummer. This is really, really a big thing. But it's going to have one of the smaller third rows that the Escalade has ever had. Size-wise, it's about the same length, a little bit shorter than the Escalade ESV, the extended wheelbase Escalade. On the inside, it's a little closer to the regular Escalade because they gave it the biggest hood the Escalade has ever had. Uh, what do you think of that styling choice? It doesn't have an engine, never was designed to have one. This platform is 100% battery electric, but they chose to put the greenhouse, the windshield location, etc., super far back. It looks like it was designed for an inline 12. I'm actually okay with it because I think the huge dash to axle ratio is a, like a traditional paradigm of luxury car style. And if you look at what Rolls-Royce is doing with the Spectre, they're doing exactly the same thing. They're giving it the proportions of a classical, high-powered, gasoline-fueled, road-going luxury boat. And I, I think it's it's what people want. I don't think they want this thing to look like a CUV, even though it is technically the mightiest crossover ever made. I think they want it to look like an Escalade, which, you know, mission accomplished, it does. Um, it would be great if some of that space were a little bit more usable, but I think in terms of the aesthetics, they nailed it. My greater concern is where this sits in a world where you've already got Escalades at the platinum level as your luxury standard bearers, but you've also got the V, which is your performance standard this will have 750 horsepower or up to it, but it's not going to go like a rocket. It's going to be around five yeah. seconds, to 60. It's going to be saying under, under five seconds. Yeah. They don't tell us. So we don't know what that means. But, you know, three is under five, but maybe four and a half is more rational. It's not going to be a Hummer. It's not going to have watts to freedom. No. It's not going to snap your neck. It's not going to be a lucid. I, I do think it's interesting because historically the greatest Cadillacs, if we look back at like the V16, the Series 70, Eldorado Brome, they were competently powered, but they weren't drag racers. So I think they might have nailed the character of this. A lot's going to kind of be dependent on throttle mapping, which we know in the EV era is a very arbitrary and artificial thing. Like how much tip in do you want? How do you want the torque curve to be shaped? Um, I do think that it's going to be as much torque 
as you ever wanted if an Escalade is the only thing you've ever wanted. I, I think that the V buyer is a little bit more edgy, maybe a little bit younger. Um, I, I think a little bit more of a, I don't know, maybe your Galenda Wagon X5M crossover shopper. This is going to be maybe for your Escalade Platinum buyer who's got just more money to spend. Yeah, it's tricky to, to answer the question of who is it for because we just don't know. Uh, it's going to be at least $130,000. The ones that we were looking at were probably more on the order of $160,000 to $170,000 by most estimates. So quite expensive. More along the lines of a top-end electric Range Rover, maybe, when we see one, than the traditional shopper. But also the intriguing part is that these bones are going to be used in an electric Suburban, in an electric Tahoe, and a Yukon, etc. And we don't know if those are going to have the same extremely long hood proportion or not. My guess is that they probably will because uh, General Motors likes to recycle things. And so all of the interior components that you can see, the buttons, the switches, the stocks, the turn signal things, the shifter, etc., the majority of them are recycled out of the Blazer EV and the Cadillac Lyric and the Chevy Equinox EV, etc. So also, obviously, the Silverado work truck, interestingly, uses these same components. So uh, interesting twists there. But the dashboard itself has a very novel thing. The enormous screen goes all the way from the driver's window all the way across to the passenger window. And they're focusing a lot on the second row experience. So I, it sounds kind of like they're trying to make this the ultimate executive transport thing with an emergency third row. Uh, because the third row is a little disappointing. You know, Cadillac has not sold a two-row Escalade ever uh, that I can recall, unless there's been one without uh, the Escalade truck, I guess, technically would be the two-row Escalade. Uh, but this has a third row that is, you know, maybe Kia Telluride-ish in size. Okay, so now the way I look at this... Um... Okay, in terms of the dash to axle, I don't know if it's going to be translated over to the Tahoes and the Suburbans just because I was in the Silverado RSV uh, about a year ago at the New York Auto Show, and I, I was all over the thing. But I, I mainly just want to get a sense of its proportions and its size because it was so massive. It didn't have a really aggressive dash to axle ratio, and I think that like your Tahoes, your Suburbans, your Yukons are probably going to share more of that kind of proportion than they will with the Escalade just because I think there's going to be more commonality between the pickup and, and the, the run-of-the-mill, big, expensive, full-size SUVs. Um, in terms of like where this stands, I'm also going to throw out an Alpinid X7. So if you're in the BMW mm, camp, good, that's good. good. Yeah. General um, Motors does generally share, however, crash structures and a lot of that in the product selling. So, so Escalade and, and the other full-size SUVs share a great deal dimensionally in that way, even though direct parts not shared because of these necessitated uh, uh, crash requirements, especially when we're talking about a ginormous battery. So on that front, I would actually say I, I would be very surprised if the dash axle ratio changed appreciably uh, in the others, because that would be a massive structural change since the A-pillars, et cetera, are involved in crash compliance. Uh, and of course, that would alter side impact stuff as well. So uh, well, I mean, we'll have to see, but uh, but it is interesting that they developed this on a new wheelbase, so it doesn't share the wheelbase and some of the wheel floor stampings with the Hummer directly. It is a slightly different arrangement of these parts. Yeah, and it is interesting in terms of like 
size to just kind of go over how big it is. Uh, the first thing is that it's got a gigantic wheelbase. Your standard Escalade's 121. Your Escalade ESV is 134. The IQ is going to be 136.2. Now, in terms of overall length, it's longer than a standard Escalade by about uh, 12 and change, but it's actually a little bit shorter than the 227 of the Escalade ESV. Now, the longer wheelbase, that's Largely, I'm going to imagine forward of the dashboard. I think without an engine in there, you can push the wheels out all the way to the front. It's also and, the wheels are also a little closer to the rear. It's the proportions do shift around a bit, so it's like the wheels are, are pushed to every corner, uh, and then the vehicle's a little bit more centered on it than you find in the regular Escalade, simply because of the way that a regular car's wheelbase stretch ends up happening. And it is 4.2 inches wider than either the standard Escalade or the ESV. I imagine this and is going to be body a width. That's not just mirrors. That is like actual body. <laughs> it's going to be an incredibly unpopular thing at a charging stall. Like I guarantee you there will be horror stories like someone having to like park next to one of these things and not being able to hook up because yeah. it takes up the equivalent of like one and a quarter parking spots in some places. Yeah. 246 kilowatt hour battery pack in this puppy. Uh, General Motors won't tell us about how much is usable, but it's around 200 kilowatt hours is usable. So probably about 212, uh, much like the Hummer EV. Anyway, you slice it. This is a massive, massive battery pack, and they won't tell us a lot of details like curb weight, things like that. But most estimates pit this somewhere around the 9,000 pound mark. It is entirely possible it could be lighter structurally than the Hummer since it doesn't have the off-road oriented design, but that it has some additional features that we don't find in the Hummer, of course, like the third row, the opulent interior bits, which are heavy, etc. cetera. Uh, and it has essentially the same battery pack, which weighs about as much as a Honda Civic somewhere around there. So it's a, it's a, it's a big, big, bad battery. Yeah, it is monumental, but also it's, it is very much, I'm not going to call it a car, but again, I like to call this the mightiest crossover. It's got 6.9 inches of ground clearance, and that's with, that's, that's with massive rolling stock. Um, these are what, 35s on this thing in terms of the tire diameter? Yeah, 35 inch tire, and they're not low profile tires, which is the interesting part. They're not off-road. They're not low profile sports tires either, because we have a 24 inch wheel on there. Uh, it's a 50 series tire. Um, 275, though, is the only tire width you can get on potentially 9,000 pounds of, uh, of of SUV. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting handful, I would assume. I actually like that they didn't go with a super low profile tire. Frankly, a lot of these things will be driven in the Northeast where we have monster potholes. I cannot think of anything more embarrassing than being stuck on a local turnpike with a flat tire in your $130,000 prestige EV because of a two inch jagged puddle. Yep. And no spare tire on board. FYI. Okay. Let's talk about the circumstances of that headlining 450 mile range. You mentioned it earlier. Apparently this is under what circumstances? So remember that with EV range, the range figure is combined EPA range. So it's based on 55% city driving, 45% highway. And the other key thing for listeners to remember is that the EPA highway test averages 48 miles an hour and the city test averages about 21 miles an hour. The average for the entire cycle that will get you theoretically 455, uh, 450 miles or so is about 34 miles an hour. So sure, if you drove the Escalade at 34 miles an hour, should be bang on for about 450 miles. If you are driving it as most people do, especially if you live in a state like Texas, where a ton of Escalades are sold, then you're probably going to see that range drop 
quite a bit. You're probably going to be more around maybe 300 miles of 70 mile an hour range would, would be my approximate guess uh, in the real world using air conditioning, et cetera. That's still a very solid number, though. Don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing on it. I'm saying that's a this is a fantastically big battery pack to get you range numbers that shoppers should actually be able to utilize. Charging it, though, that's going to be a different matter. If you want to actually charge this puppy all the way up, it is going to take a long time. Well, you should be able to get a reasonable amount of range in, I don't know, let's say 30 minutes, like usable range. You should be able to make the next rest stop or something like that. Yeah, obviously, we don't have complete details yet, and it will depend on the charger you access, which is why we should dive into the uh, Tesla charger here in a, in a moment here. But depending on the charger you use, theoretically, you could get up to it's around 80, 90 miles in 10 minutes, something like that. 30 minute charge could conceivably get you somewhere over 200 miles, but it's not a linear relationship. It's not like you plug in, you get 80 miles for 10 minutes. And then if you plug in for 20 minutes, you get 160 miles because it's going to depend on how warm the battery is, what the charger can do, what state of charge the battery is is at when you pull into the station and what station you pull into. Lots and lots of factors there. And lots of unanswered questions because uh, you know we noticed that the Cadillac Escalade IQ, despite being a 2025 model year vehicle, has a CCS charge connector oh, on it, oh, yeah. not the new Tesla NACS NAX charger connector. Um, which is why we probably ought to dive into actually uh, the NAX connector uh, and a little bit of a merch plug because, you know, we have new merch right there. The one plug to rule them all shirts, two different designs, get them at the merch store. Uh, at any rate, so diverging a little bit to what we know and what we don't know about NACS. I was recently able to pick some brains with the Ultium folks at GM, with some folks at Ford and with some folks at Volvo, none of which interestingly would actually speak on the record mind you. So can't use any names here, but the long and the short of it is, and this is the thing that's, I think, more intriguing. They're, they have been very clear. They are not adopting the connector that is currently used on a Tesla. So if you have one of these on your Tesla, this is not what you're going to get. You're going to get the one that is pin compatible to this, essentially the standardized version of the plug that is on Tesla's website as NACS. So you can actually download their PDF spec sheet for the new new uh, thousand volt NACS connector because this connector is not rated for a thousand volts. It's not going to be that that current one. It's going to be the next generation connector. Key thing there. The next generation connector NACS is literally CCS and J1772 jammed on a connector that is pin compatible with this puppy right here. And that's important because Tesla's charge connector for their V3 supercharger stations does not use the same signaling protocol as CCS. It uses CAN bus to communicate, not PLC. Uh, the uh, CCS connectors all use power line communications. And that's a really key differentiator because NACs is all power line communication. And that was one bit that I hadn't been able to get out of these companies was, is General Motors going to support CAN communication? The answer is no. They're only going to be supporting NACS as standard, which is going to be PLC. Uh, this is where I have to do a full disclosure here and say Tesla won't talk to the media. So we cannot get detailed information out of Tesla. And this is a very fluid space. So keep that in mind. The other shocking bit was at the Silverado launch event, one of the uh, GM engineers said that his battery team wasn't told about that announcement 
uh, until it actually happened. So they had not heard that that was agreed upon. They, they had sort of heard rumor-wise that it could be coming, but they, at that point, had no detail. They did not know anything about anything. Um, so that's how that's going down. And the, the and, and it makes sense because the new NACS connector is going to be 1,000 volts, which will support the faster charging rates on these, te- on these uh, Ultium family vehicles, right? Because they have the dual voltage charging. Now, the key thing that we don't know what this means is can you plug your... EQ, IQ, whatever, your Escalade IQ, your other IQ things, can you plug them into a Tesla V3 charge station? Because the supercharger V3s do not support CCS signaling by and large. The ones with the Magic Dock adapter do, most of them do not at this point in time. And that's what's going to be required for this group of NACS vehicles to come online and use the chargers. Now, uh, the assumption is that that is why this transition is delayed. Uh, Also a bit of clarification. Initially, we were told that 2024 vehicles would have compatibility and 2025 would have the native plug. What they meant was calendar year, not model year. So that's why also the Volvo EX30 being a 2025 will ship with the CCS plug on it initially. Then at some point in calendar year 2025, it will get the NACS connector once SAE has standardized it. So I guess SAE and Tesla and everybody are working together to actually create a standard for this thing. And then whatever that future standard is that is yet to be devised, that is what we will see on these vehicles. So there is a bit of fluidity here. Um, Now, not to ding on anything, but my guess is that even though we will still see a high number of supercharger V3 stations out there, uh, because Tesla's V4 station is going to be the 1,000 volt station, so we're still going to see a lot of V3 superchargers around. I would expect Tesla to swap in the PLC signaling ability in those stations very rapidly because it it seems like it's just an additional, additional module hardware-wise and then a little bit of software. And that's something that even though Tesla has a huge supercharger network, they've proved they have the ability to make these updates quickly. And we're still a year away. So, I mean, they're, that should be totally fine. They'll They'll probably all work. But we will be in this window where your Cadillac Escalade IQ may give you X charging at a CCS station in 10 minutes or at a V4 supercharger station in 10 minutes, but not at a V3 supercharger station because the charge rates are going to be different on the lower voltage output. Yeah, so just to sum up, it's going to be a while before you have GM and Ford and Mercedes, et cetera, vehicles that are natively compatible with the Tesla plug, the supercharger signaling. And uh, for that matter, I guess they got to figure out how they're going to make plug and charge work. They're going to have to be some standards put in place for that. Um, But in the meantime, we're going to be in this weird neither world of magic dock converters, um, vehicles that don't have Tesla plugs, but can theoretically work at Tesla chargers and two different Tesla supercharger standards, one of which is 400 volts and won't talk to most vehicles. And the other of which V4 is a thousand and should be able to communicate with newer vehicles purposely designed. Question, and this is a big question that's been on my mind. Now that we're going to have so many different mass manufacturers using the supercharger network, what commitment have they actually made of GM, Mercedes, Volvo, Polestar, Ford made to build out the network? Because there are places where they're already crowded. We do not have any solid data on that. They would not talk about payments or agreements directly with Tesla for the use of their network. And so that that is kind of the unanswered question. But logically, they have all paid for access. So there are companies, theoretically, that may adopt the NACS connector 
without actually agreeing to uh, have access to the Tesla supercharger network. Those two are not not directly tied with one another. Just because you have the plug in your car doesn't mean you'll be able to charge at a supercharger station. Also, Tesla is not providing the adapters like they do with Magic Dock. The car company making your car will give you an adapter that you have to take with you to charge at a supercharger station, which is kind of an interesting twist there. I had sort of hoped that maybe Ford, GM, et cetera, would pay to have Magic Docks kind of happen because that seems more logical, but that is seemingly not what we are going to be getting. Um, so a little bit of a twist there on that front. Also worth noting, ABB and a number of other companies that make chargers for networks like Electrify America, EVgo, et cetera, they have adopted the NACS connector, but it does appear that they are not adopting CAN signaling on the NACS connector. Again, details a little sketchy here still, but it appears that those stations will not be able to charge older Teslas without a hardware update on the Tesla. So if your Tesla was built prior to 2001, uh, sorry, 2021, prior to about October, 2021, uh, your Tesla does not have the capability to charge at a CCS charging station. So if you cannot use a CCS adapter, you won't be able to use those new NACS charging stations, it appears. We're still waiting for some clarifying details on that one. Probably not the biggest deal though, because I I did the numbers and the vast majority, something like 70% of all Teslas on the road have actually been sold after October, 2021. Like their sales just flew on this massive uh, spike. So at this point, the majority of Teslas sold in North America actually should be just fine. I still think that's a class action lawsuit waiting to happen. Those vehicles, uh, yeah. It's it's convoluted. Let's put it this way. Tesla has a solution. So, and and I would say if you want to prepare for this future, if you have a Tesla now, get your get your PLC signaling adapter. It's like I think it's about a five hundred dollar upgrade. Uh, you can do that now. Get them before everybody is interested in them, and there's a run on the bank, and you can't get one. Now wrapping this back up to the Escalade IQ, this is where I worry. Okay, it seems like it's clear that this new IQ is sort of a bridge between something like the Lyric and the Celestic, but in the bigger constellation of GM brands and models, do they just have too many 9,000 pound, 80 to $100,000 EV trucks coming out? I know this I honestly be think so. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be an Equinox, a new Bolt, but at some point you got to sell something that isn't designed for a millionaire, right? Yeah. And they're going to have, uh, they're rolling out a whole boatload of new EVs. They actually gave us an Ultium rollout schedule this calendar year. And they're a decent number of the big names. Equinox Blazer obviously is going to be in there. The Bright Drop delivery EV thing. I'd actually completely forgotten about Bright Drop. This is the alternative to the Rivian delivery van made by GM. Uh, those are all coming this year. Also, we're going to be getting the Honda Prologue at some point here shortly. So all all Ultium all GM in this family here. But you'll notice that the rollout schedule is very, very skewed towards the high end. You know, we know that there's not going to be a cheap Blazer EV anymore. Uh, And the Equinox $30,000 model probably is dead too. Let's just, uh, let's be honest. That's probably never happening. Silverado EV ended up being quite a bit more expensive than we all thought. Next, we're going to get a Sierra EV, which is probably going to start solidly close to the six digit mark as well, at least for the uh, early models. Um, If a work truck with vinyl floors and a urethane steering wheel and no nice fits at all is 80 grand starting, that tells you where the the GMC Sierra is going to be there. 
Yeah, and in the short term, we're losing the Bolt, which were it not for an early model year phase out, would probably be having its best sales year ever and may yet still have its best sales year ever. So they're going to be losing one accessible EV long before any kind of successor is on the horizon. Uh, and that sort of brings us to, like, I guess our next topic, which is new and upcoming cars. I want to open with a not so much philosophical, but factual question. Is the $20,000 car dead? Uh, you know, it's definitely dying. Let's let's be honest, uh, because you are right around $20,000 for the least expensive anything in North America. And by the time you've had a destination and an automatic transmission, you're, you're over $30,000. Um, I think the next question will be, when is the death of the $30,000 car happening? Because it seems to be coming soon. It, it really does. As far as I can tell, the only $20,000 cars left are the Kia Rio and the Nissan Versa. The Mitsubishi Mirage is dead as of this year, which means we're down to two. I can remember as a much younger person when the $10,000 car was phased out. But I think this is more important because, like you said, we're looking at a very rapid jump from the $20,000 mark to the $30,000 mark. Part of this is the advance of technology, safety features you have to include, but some of it's just post-pandemic realignment in favor of more expensive models by the automakers. And uh, I think, yeah, we're going to go very quickly from the end of $20,000 to the end of $30,000 cars, which makes this more of an important milestone. Yeah. And of course, you know, the Rio 5 is dead. And it does appear that the Rio sedan is probably not long for this world either. We know that the hatch is dead. Uh, sedan, that that we don't know. It is still being made. It is still on sale at this point. We don't have any 2024 information to share. So that may be next, next nail in the coffin. I think the trouble has been that the more expensive vehicles are more profitable. Let's be honest. So if a manufacturer has a choice about which margin to focus on, even though there is solid money to be had down there at the $20,000 price point, they choose to focus somewhere else. And I, I do think that's a bit of a pity. Um, manufacturers that had been giving us also some solid options in the all-wheel drive space, like Mazda with the inexpensive versions of a number of their models. 2024 is actually killing off a decent number of those base trims as well. CX-50 effectively got about four grand more expensive for 2024. Uh, it was one of the least expensive entries in that segment. Um, Kia Seltos is now the least expensive all-wheel drive new vehicle in America for 2024. Uh, sorry, all-wheel drive SUV for, for 2024. Uh, and it's not as cheap as it used to be. It's definitely not, uh, not Kia Soul priced. Now, I think it's important to remind everyone that we do a lot of EV talk here because it's the forefront. It's very exciting. There's a lot of prestige models coming out. But in terms of non-EV upcoming vehicles, let's talk about some of the most interesting. I think what's interesting to a lot of folks is going to be mid-sized trucks. We've got a new Tacoma coming out, but we've also got a Dakota on the horizon. Uh, before we talk about the Taco, let's talk about what the Dakota might include because this is the first time in a generation that Ram has offered that type of vehicle. Yeah. I mean, of course, they won't talk about it. So we're all just rumoring along here. Full disclosure, we're looking into our crystal ball. Uh, but it does appear that it's going to be some format of midsize truck likely built on a shrunken version of the body on frame platform that underpins a wide variety of their vehicles. So we don't know whether that means live axle in the back or independent suspension in the back. That is a little bit unsure at this time. Most likely though, it will use the ZF8 speed automatic transmission, most likely some selection of four cylinder and six cylinder engines. 
there has been a bit of debate as to whether that would mean two liter turbo or 3.6 liter naturally aspirated V6, or whether it could mean two liter turbo and the three liter twin turbo inline six, which uh, I definitely hope it's the twin turbo inline. Likelihood of a V8 uh, Dakota is pretty low though. Yeah, I think the, the era of Hell, Hellcat and Hemi, everything is probably coming to a close. I, I think it's interesting that there might be, um, I mean, at this point, there might be a lot of overlap between, say, the midsize SUVs in the catalog, even the ones that are not body on frame, just things like, uh, you know, of, of course, the uh, the Grand Cherokee being kind of like the template for what would power a Dakota type vehicle. I think Chrysler, Stellantis, uh, probably as much as any company in the space is really big on corporate engines. So if I had to use my crystal ball, I'd say, you know, there could be a Pentastar in there. There could be some power from something like the Hornet at the low end and uh, maybe some sort, maybe even some sort of hybrid system, like uh, if not a plug-in system from the Hornet, definitely some sort of, no hybrid. Rumor mill says no hybrid in Dakota. Yeah. Um, so it looks like we're just looking mild hybrid would be the, the furthest that we would get at least initially. Uh, so probably the two liter turbo cause corporate wide for North America, the two liter turbo is replacing the three, six in most applications over time. And the inline six is replacing the V8 in all applications over time. So the 5.7 is going to be dead eventually. Now, there's also a, I want to say that there is a vehicle sold in Brazil that uses the two liter turbo from the Hornet. It's 268 horsepower. That's a good candidate for an entry level engine. And I think, frankly, we're going to look at some sort of turbo entry level engine because in an era when a Silverado can be powered by a Ford, a compact or midsize truck definitely can. There's also been talk of a Rampage below the Dakota, something that's more of a Maverick equivalent. But that's that's another tale for another yeah. time. And that's that's pretty unlikely. The rumor mills are all very hopeful on that front, but it seems it seems very unlikely uh, at this point in time. Let's put it that way. No, no solid sources indicate that a rampage is coming. The one that is sold in South America uh, would have some import issues as far as its manufacturer location. It would also be too small to be sold in North America for fuel economy regulations. So that's kind of a, a problem there. Yeah, it is more about the size of like a 90s Ford Ranger in terms of right. how it's packaged so it wouldn't that's make the it. Same re yeah, same reason we're never going to get the Chevy Montana that's sold in South America. There's a, there's a million tiny trucks sold abroad that people here would love to have but will never have. Some of them are even made by Suzuki, but that's that's a tale for another day. Um, so, okay, so for the Tacoma, we have a lot more details. Um, this is an interesting vehicle because the old Tacoma consistently sold well. Um, the new one's going to be bringing in hybrid tech. It's going to be on a shared platform. It's going to give us a lot of gouge concerning like what a new Forerunner might look like. But it's going to be it's going to be a flagship piece for Toyota. That we are in the truck era, and this is going to be a car people drive full time for every purpose. Uh, it's also more likely, frankly, I'm in the Northeast. We have a very urban landscape. Uh, this is the kind of truck that sells where I live, whereas the full-size truck is really where I used to live in the Panhandle, in Texas, in Florida, in Georgia. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Tacoma, just because I think this is probably going to be the biggest Toyota launch the next year. Yeah, it definitely will be, because it's going to be one of their highest volume products that they have announced in recent memory, actually. The Tacoma is probably going to be selling about a quarter million units a year. 
Uh, it's a very drastic change for the Taco because it's going all turbo uh, and optional hybrid. Um, the hybrid system itself is kind of an interesting twist because it's going to be the same hybrid system that is shared uh, with the Lexus GX as well as the Land Cruiser 250. So it's going to be a 2.4 liter turbocharged hybrid system. Uh, we do have some interesting fuel economy numbers, though, because Toyota deliberately or accidentally leaked on their public site for the Land Cruiser that they're expecting 27 miles per gallon combined for Land Cruiser 250. I think that's a little optimistic. Uh, we likely will see a reduction in the Tacoma just because of the overall truck profile, but it's possible we could be getting a 25 to 26 mile per gallon average Tacoma, which would definitely be a solid improvement on what we've seen in that model before. And just in terms of where we're standing with the Tacoma, it's going to start at about 28,000. We think if you load it up, you get a TRD Pro. The absolute top of the line is going to be somewhere around 50,000. Base Turbo 4 is going to be 228 horsepower. iForce, you're going to get 278, about 300 pound-feet of torque. Uh, iForce Max, 326, 465. And I think that's the most interesting, perhaps from an enthusiast standpoint, because that's a truck that can do anything. And 465 pound-feet, once upon a time, was F-150 Lightning supercharged territory. Um, so if you're talking about those fuel economy figures, what powertrain do you think is going to hit those numbers? That will only be the hybrid model. Uh, that's all we have any indication on. Most likely the regular turbo models will be some step below that. Uh, it is entirely possible that the base engine rear wheel drive could be the most efficient version. Uh, other interesting twist is that in the limited trim with the hybrid, you get literally exactly the same drivetrain as the Land Cruiser. So it's going to have an actual uh, differential in the middle rather than a, a traditional two-speed engage or not engage transfer case. So it's going to be full-time four-wheel drive in that model. There are definitely some pros and cons to that. I'm going to be intrigued to see how the pickup truck market responds to this because it's not going to feel like a vehicle that has too high, four high, four low. It is not going to give you that same feel. Uh, there are Obviously, a lot of advantages to this because people that live in snowy conditions, again, this huge market that loves them in urban areas in the Northeast, it's going to be far better in snow than the Tacoma has ever been. And I would argue uh, it's going to be better to drive in the snow than even the four auto modes that we find in the American car companies, but only if you get that hybrid model. Now, something very confusing to me, more so than the powertrains, which makes sense in that they're tiered by power and price. I don't understand why some of these are getting leaf springs in the rear end and some of them are getting coil springs. I just flat out don't understand why they're doing both. Cost. They were pretty upfront on that one. The leaf springs are cheaper. And uh, they said it was not a problem to develop a, a frame rail that has the elements for both suspension attachment points. So uh, if you, for instance, for some reason wanted to... Uh, change the configuration in your truck later, you actually could. So there's gonna be a decent amount of, of swapping, I would assume, aftermarket, uh, at least availability and, and possibility, uh, because the frame is common. So all the all the attachment points for everything are going to be there. The coil springs in the rear, uh, some module bolts onto the frame, and that's where the coil spring attaches. And if you get the leaf spring, it just doesn't contain that attachment point. But the mount points for the leaf spring are there on the coil sprung truck as well. I'm surprised. I mean, I, I understand that one setup is cheaper than the other. I'm just surprised that it's not ultimately cheaper to just have the production line configured one way. 
Um, if you were building a, a low volume truck, probably, but when we're talking about Tacoma volumes, then it, it totally makes sense. I mean, you take a look at, at F-150, uh, Ford couches their F-Series sales in, a, uh, in an interesting way because they always give you all of F at the same time. But if you just look at F-150 sales, if you try and read the, read the tea leaves here, F-150 is maybe selling a little bit better than RAV4. It's not a huge difference. So, uh, you know, we're not talking 700,000 units a year. F-150 alone is maybe 300 something. It's probably where we are in that, that ballpark. But even at that volume, Ford offers different cabs, different beds, completely different frames. There are at least three different frames under the F-150. So you do see this level of, of change in competitive trucks of volumes that are not far off. So it does make sense from, from that uh, standpoint. It's also very important for Toyota generally. If you think of their, their leading product, the RAV4, they're going to sell between 400,000 and about 450,000 a year. Now, for most of the big automakers in the US, full-size trucks, which sell by the hundreds of thousands per year, are the money makers. But in 2022, Toyota only sold 94,000 Tundras. And getting up to that quarter million number with the Tacoma means, in a lot of ways, it's having a success in the midsize segment that always eluded it in the theoretically more lucrative full-size segment. So after something like the RAV4, the Tacoma is going to be probably one of the top three or four most important products at Toyota, because I'm pretty sure if I had to guess, especially with options, margins are higher on a truck than they are on a CUV. It appears so. It's difficult to really tell. Since this truck is so new, it might not actually be the case, uh, because in the past, Toyota's margins had been very good on their trucks because their trucks changed relatively little generation over generation structurally. So a lot of a lot of uh, components and even direct mounting points, et cetera, were shared from one generation to the other in terms of geometry. This is completely different, shares nothing. So it was a lot more expensive to do, which is part of why Tundra and Tacoma's uh, creation was synergized because Tundra needed the help because Tundra probably is considerably less profitable than Tacoma in this, this world. Um, so it's gonna be interesting to see how this goes. The Toyota definitely had some traction issues with the with the Tacoma in the U.S. for a, quite a while. It wasn't really until Ranger died in America that all the Ranger shoppers moved over to Tacoma. And then even when Ranger came back, they didn't return to the American brands. They stayed with Toyota. Um, and Tundra's volume has come and go, come and gone, and it's it's not at its peak. So it's it's still hovering well below where Tundra has been in the past. Um, the full-size truck market, I think, is quite a different market. They just have never been able to crack that nut. I think ultimately the full-size truck manufacturers are just going to price themselves out. I think, I don't want to compare it to like Japanese sports cars in the early 90s, but they're just so goddamn expensive. You go outside of Costco, you see, you know, an F-150 like FX4 or something, it's like $65,000. Like, are you kidding me? Like these things used to cost 35 grand. And I think the heir to that, unless you're really doing work where you need that capacity to tow five figures, a lot of folks are just going to go with these midsize trucks. So I think if you've got strength in the midsize segment, hang on to that like dear life because that's the future. It's, uh, it's intriguing because it seems like it's a different shopper, at least for the moment. So the rise in small trucks and midsize trucks in America, and, and by 
by small, we don't really mean small, small, because the Maverick is the size of a Dodge Durango. And so if you consider a Durango compact, then sure, you do you. But at any rate, uh, but the rise in these smaller format trucks has not actually uh, eaten into half ton sales. Generally speaking, it's been additive to the, the, the share in the market. Um, and an interesting twist that I hadn't really contemplated before was the the rise in factory off-road packages and the plethora of options, et cetera, was largely a response to what manufacturers were seeing aftermarket. So if you look at truck lots, uh, many dealers that have bought trucks and are hanging out on lots, the longest turn time is actually the least expensive of the trucks available. So customers are going in wanting these high dollar value trucks. And it seems to be because in a previous lifetime, maybe 20 years ago, they were buying an F-150 with whatever options you could get on it at the time. And then a lot of decent percentage of these customers were then going out and modifying the truck. They were adding this doodad, or they were adding an aftermarket suspension, or they were adding a, an aftermarket bed liner. Um, bed liners actually are a key part of these sorts of things. Like think of all those options lists you can choose. You know, you want a locker, you want a bed liner, you want, um, you know, different fog lights or whatever. All of that used to be done aftermarket and now factory options are the king. So that's an interesting twist as well. And then we have extra dealer add-ons and doodads that really raise those transaction prices up. So it's like the mud flap game and the fog light cover and the aftermarket light bar and all of that. Now you can roll into the dealer and all that can be wrapped into your financing, whereas before it couldn't. You know, that's the oldest store in the auto industry, which is the auto industry chasing the aftermarket. Back in the 1950s, aftermarket air conditioners led the way. We remember the knee knockers until the factory started equipping these. You could even get them on Chevrolet after a point. Uh, back in the 60s, it was performance. The aftermarket was all about hot cams, intake manifolds, dual quads, and then factory performance followed. In the 80s, it was things like car phones before the manufacturers followed. And in more recent years, a great example, this would be something like the wilderness packages on Subarus. There were a lot of people who were hell-bent on turning their Outbacks and Foresters and cross treks into like real legitimate off-road vehicles. And Subaru kind of decided we're going to move in on that action. And yeah, I can definitely see stuff like the TRD Pro or like a ZR2 being a response to what people are doing on the aftermarket with their mid-size pickups. Yep. And it's the same reason. Super is an excellent example. They said that their dealers had been doing a lot of these modifications for their customers already. So people wanted to buy it already this way. So these dealers, especially in the Pacific Northwest, had been tweaking and modding Subarus. And interestingly, they worked with the dealers because the dealers weren't necessarily into this work. Some obviously are, but apparently a decent percentage of Subaru dealers really just wanted Subaru to do it. So that way they could sell it right as it rolled off the truck. They didn't have to take the time to do the modding and then throw it on there. And they wanted the manufacturer's warranty so they could sell it to their customers going, look, Here's the modded Subaru, and it still has the regular warranty. So you don't have to worry about your warranty claim being denied because, I don't know, you overheated and you had a skid plate on there. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember back in the 2000s, the day GM finally announced they were going to make 22s available from the factory and the Escalade. Exactly the same thing. Uh, it's easy to go crazy on EVs when talking about future cars. I do want to stick with some gas-powered models a little bit longer and maybe talk about something that's a bit more salt of the earth, the new Chevy Traverse that's coming out. Because... Uh, 
it's interesting that it's it's a CUV platform. It's it's a crossover utility, but it looks very aggressively truck like. Is this a new thing? Yes, they uh, I was surprised, actually, that they were talking some of their numbers. They thought not enough dudes were interested in this because because reasons. Um, so apparently their average shopper is largely female. And they thought that by butching it up a bit, they could attract more of a male audience without distancing the female audience that already existed. So they're not trying to not be appealing to women. They also wanted some dudes in there buying traverses. And that was the butcher look, apparently, the rationale behind that. That sounds very logical, because I remember years ago when Jeep offered both the Compass and the Patriot, and they were basically the same mediocre thing with a different body. They did focus groups and found that men tended to like the vaguely XJ Cherokee looking Patriot, and women tended to gravitate towards the uh, the Compass. So I mean, it's true. You know, it's like my, my dad bought a Patriot, my aunt bought a Compass. So there you go. <laughs> I guess I'm just like a guy because I, I sort of I sort of liked the way the the uh, compass looked or the uh, Patriot looked. The Patriot did look like a mini XJ Cherokee in the same sense that the Commander looked like a bloated, overwrought XJ Cherokee. They were confused back in the 2000s, that's for sure. Yeah, the, I mean the the Commander I think was a was an idea before its time, much like the original Pacifica. Because I if they had if they had continued with that, I think its sales would have gone where they wanted them to go over time especially since they effectively just gave us another commander later anyway with the uh, the Grand Cherokee L. Um, but there was this hot second where they were like, oh, people don't want a three-row Jeep, so we're just going to have to make that thing a Durango, and we won't call that a Jeep, that three-row thing. It's not it's not Jeep enough like. Um, and then this time around, they're like, yeah, no, that's fine. Let's stick a Jeep logo on And then we'll give them an even bigger one in the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. Yeah, so if you're a speculative collector of future collectible Mopars. That's uh, I, I, Can we still call Mopar in the Stellantis era? I don't know. Yes, it is still Mopar. Although, you know, the interior in the Grand Wagoneer, I don't think it's aged as well as the exterior. So I don't know if it's collector status. I don't know. We're, we're, I don't think the new Grand Wagoneer is going to age as well externally as it does internally. It's the inverse. Yeah, I'm still not sold on the body color painted pillars, but, you know. Okay. There are there are some there are some new intriguing designs coming out that seem to be featuring body colored pillars. And once upon a time they were body colored as well. So maybe we will all be going back to that and and uh, our our brief flirtation with the blacked out pillars will will go wrong. Yeah, well, the worst thing is like all these compact and mid-sized cars like Nissan's the worst with this where they have that blacked out C pillar and they want to create this floating roof. It's like, dude, I can see the piece of plastic. What are you thinking? The floating roof thing, I just never quite understood. Like, why why does the roof need to float? It doesn't. It, it's it's a terrible idea. And I don't know, maybe it looks great on a super high-level execution, like a Velar or something. It just looks terrible on a mid-size or compact car. But I, I digress. I will say this. The new Traverse, there's going to be a Z71, which should have at least... I don't know, a nominal level of off-road competence. So if you want to maybe live the dream, you've got the look that'll get you as close to, I guess, walking the walk is talking the talk. 36,000 to 55,000, roughly speaking, in terms of price, there's only one engine. GM is big on that corporate V6, 315 horsepower, which sounds great by like, I don't well, know. It's a brand new one. It's a brand new, brand new 2.5 liter turbo. So no V6, the V6 is dead. But aren't we going to see this three point, uh, this uh, two point five turbo everywhere? Like, isn't this just like another corporate engine? 
Uh, we probably will see it in other vehicles, but we don't know for sure yet. So it's it's a little tricky to tell. It's it's related to the two seven that is in the truck lineup. Only this is of course turned ninety degrees under the hood. So uh, at the moment, it looks like this two five is going to be in this series of SUV only. Um, details details yet to come. It does not appear that they're going to stick it in the smaller EV set or smaller uh, SUV set. So we probably will not see this in Equinox's replacement. Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall GM SUVs have gotten a lot better just within the last generation. Because if you asked me between 2016 and 2019, what I thought of compact midsize and extended wheelbase midsize GM SUVs, I would have told you in every product category, look somewhere else. And I actually like American cars. So, I mean, what can I say? They've been generally better across the board with each new generation coming out. I like the way this looks. I like the interior packaging. I haven't been inside it, but I will say that by the standards of previous GM interiors, it seems less plasticky, more bespoke, and more agreeable overall. I no longer look at it and have like that intrinsic revolt that I had with, I don't know, the previous version of the Silverado interior. The uh, It's very roomy. It's so uh, it's about the same size as the old Traverse. So it's still going to be one of the larger in the segment, not as large as Grand Highlander, most likely, or uh, still possibly in some dimensions Telluride, but it's going to be on the larger end of things. It's going to have fantastically huge screens. So expect the base price to go decently up versus the last generation model because the, the LCD in the dash is huge. Um, plastics, uh, I would say a bit of a mixed bag. It is similar in terms of variation and plastic quality to the existing Traverse. Um, better planned as far as what plastics are where in the dash but largely similar as far as the quality of plastics used. Uh, there is a lot of shiny black plastic in there, which I think could not could have a, be a problem as far as long-term wear. Uh, the shiny black plastics definitely don't wear well. No, that's a fact. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Look, the, if you want the best wearing materials in a car interior, you, you want the rock hard plastics from 1990s hondas and toyotas that stuff doesn't age if you want soft touch if you want a reflective finish if you want any kind of graining or polish you, you're pretty much resigning yourself to the fact that these things are going to look terrible i mean if you looked at an audi interior that's like five years old i don't think anyone has better perceived quality than volkswagen's audi division especially on the mid mid range to upper range cars. And yet all these soft touch surfaces peel, they warp, they crack, they fade, they discolor. I don't think companies make durable auto interiors anymore. I just don't think they do. The, the perceived quality thing is such a major factor in the purchase. No one seems to care how it looks outside of warranty. The, uh, the things that we don't know currently are how much have the the improvements in materials engineering helped the interiors. So uh, especially about 10 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, when manufacturers started moving to lower VOC interiors, which is logical for health reasons, like it was not a good thing to be in your car with all the new car smells going on. A lot of the adhesives just weren't that great. And so it, but there was a lot of research still going on and they didn't know how they would work in the real world until they went wrong. And it's, we've seen that time over time in new technologies that then have to get refined and then turn out okay. So, you know, an, an injection molded dashboard in a current Toyota Highlander 
probably going to last better than a Highlander from 10 or 20 years ago when this transition started as far as performance in the sun and hot weather, et cetera. But there's still obviously going to be some longer term, you know, dashboard warping. If you want the the most durable interior, you shouldn't get the one with the stitched leather dash, even though it looks fantastic. Yeah, Corvette guys found that out the hard way. That's a fact. Um, okay, so we talked a little bit about some interesting gasoline-powered cars. I want you to throw something else out if you got something in, in mind, because I, I did want to talk about the 2024 Chevy Equinox. Um, the Equinox EV is coming up. It's going to be at least until the bow of a new Bolt, the cheapest and most accessible way to get into a GM EV. And given just how much of their resources, especially battery resources, are going to really big, expensive trucks, I think this might be a standalone for a little while. I'd be genuinely surprised, given the problems they've had, if they're able to scale up battery production to sell all of this new stuff at once. This might be your only chance if you're not taking out a huge loan. Yeah, and we just don't know how much it's going to be because they had promised a $30,000 model. I'm going to bet that that's not happening. Um, I'm going to go ahead and and bet that it's going to be at least $10,000 more than expected. Um, I'm willing to be surprised because Blazer did not turn out quite as bad as I had expected price-wise, the, the the flavors of Blazer that we do know of now. Uh, but the Equinox is not that much less expensive intrinsically than the Blazer. It is a little bit smaller, so it's not going to be a massive price difference between the two. Yeah, I think the equivalent of a 1LT and maybe even like a 2LT is probably dead. Uh, I think once you start getting deeper into the you know, the weeds of GM specs, I think something like a 3LT or like a 2RS would be like, where is this going to start? I do think that number is going to be somewhere around $40,000. They're going to be leaning heavily on the federal tax credit to help defer some of that uh, and maybe some state credits as well. I guarantee you the price they advertise is whatever it's going to be with the credit included. But, oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it'll be fascinating just to see, because I've heard that even, you know, we talked about the boring Rivian alternative delivery van that uh, GM offers, and they're having trouble scaling that up because they can't get batteries. Um, is the battery bottleneck going to abate in time for all these new GM EVs to hit the market? Because if it's not, we're not going to see anything but the $80,000 to $150,000 trucks. Yeah, we just don't know at this point in time because General Motors won't really talk about some of their battery pipeline issues. Um for instance, some manufacturers seem to have signed decent long-term contracts with partners for battery production. Uh, most notably, like Ford and uh, Stellantis seem to be meeting their production targets or actually exceeding their initial production targets. So yeah, at this point in time, once the new factories are online for Mach-E and Lightning, because they took a pause while they reworked some production line stuff, uh, those trucks are going to be built at double the volume that was initially anticipated for this this track. So in their initial projection, they'll actually they're actually going to double that. Uh, GM has had the opposite problem where they just have not met their productions. But GM is trying to do more of the battery production themselves, theoretically to lower costs later. Um, but there is so much unknown. And then, of course, GM then decided to shift gears and they're shifting away from the pouch cell that they had really dedicated themselves to for Ultium. Um, Ultium still, I think, has a lot of promise. But I do have to say that a lot of the promise that has been promised is just not being delivered at all. Yeah, when you look at the number of Hummer EVs and Lyrics that have actually made it to customers, it feels now that both of them have been with us for a while. But 
it's no more than a trickle. It's, I mean, between them, what combined, maybe like, I don't know, 150 vehicles a month, both of them combined. So, yeah, I mean, I would say this. In theory, the new Equinox is supposed to be available with two different battery capacities, one given roughly a 300-mile range, one given roughly 250. I'd be shocked if that 250 model is actually available at launch, and maybe if it ever becomes available. Yeah, I, you know, GM has been very late, let's just put it that way, um, and it does not appear to be getting a great deal better. Yeah, so I think it's an interesting vehicle just because it does give you that price proposition that that no one really, including Tesla, is offering right now. Not not at that price point, not in the low $30,000 range. Uh, we'll see if that car ever actually happens. But uh, in terms of what kind of performance you could expect, I think there was an option model that was going to have about 290 horsepower, no talk on torque, but it will be all-wheel drive. So I would expect something along the lines of what you get from a Bolt, roughly 0 to 60 in you know, 6 to 6.5 seconds. It's not going to be a head-snapping EV. I guess bigger questions are, you know, will it be out after the great NACS migration is finished? Like, will there ever be adapters? Will we ever see a CCS plug on this? Yeah. And we just don't know at this point in time. Yeah, so a lot of unanswered questions, which is unfortunate because it's a really interesting vehicle. We're a little bit closer to seeing the Polestar 3, which, although perhaps similar in the sense that it's a compact SUV, a much higher price point, around $85,000. This is an interesting one because, correct me if I'm wrong, but initially it's going to be made overseas and then later it's going to be built domestically. The production details finally are, are a little bit on the sketchy side, but it is going to be built in South Carolina. It may actually start there depending on exactly where in the production process they are when that factory is ready. Um, and then the XC90 will be built only in South Carolina for the North American market. Okay, now this is more of a performance vehicle. Frankly, I was always a little bit surprised that Polestar didn't advertise the two as an SUV, but this one is going to be an unabashed you know, compact size SUV. It's going to be fast. It's going to have 489 horsepower standard, 517 with performance, torque to match. It's going to roll on 22s, um, somewhere between 250 and 300 miles of range. What's availability going to actually look like? Because I think we've learned that in the EV era, model years and availability um, aren't always intuitive. You know, we just don't know at this point in time, uh, but they have been beating some of their initial estimates as far as availability. Uh, it's still a very niche product, so I would say the track record is going to be pretty similar to what was seen in the previous. Okay. Well, since we're approaching the end and we're talking about future cars, okay, your choice, Rolls-Royce Spectre or Cadillac Celestic, which which one do you option up with uh, your, your your dream combo? color, interior, materials. I would just go with neither, uh, but that's just me. Uh, I am intrigued to see Cadillac try and claw their way up market, and it's probably the right way to go for them because obviously the margins are going to be higher. I just am curious who this customer is that can afford both and says, I would like the Cadillac. There are just too many Rolls Royces in my neighborhood. I, I, mean, I suppose that's a thing, but, um, but I, I, I am intrigued to see who this customer is. And there are customers, mind you, uh, there have been detractors, but they've sold out their first year and a half of production. Yeah. And they said that, you, that that's going to be somewhere around maybe 400 cars. They're going to have a capacity of two to three cars a day, but they don't expect to make two to three cars per day. Uh, two things about this. First, I've seen the Phantom Coupe. Uh, I've also seen the Wraith. 
The Spectre is going to be similar in size and shape to those. And, you know, it's impressive. It's got presence. But I've seen the Celestic, and it's jaw-dropping. It looks like nothing else. It's impossibly low, impossibly long. It looks like it costs twice as much as a Wraith. And I'll, I'll say this. It's a more impressive-looking vehicle. And if you're shopping at that price point where... Frankly, I don't think anyone's getting out the door at less than 400 grand for a Celestic or 500 grand for the Spectre. I can't see paying 500 grand for the Spectre when the Celestic looks absolutely shocking. I mean, it's when you see it in person, I've seen a lot of two door Rolls Royces in the BMW era. I've never seen anything that looks like a Celestic. It, it just has that Cadillac logo on it, though. I mean, the, the reality is most people buy the Rolls-Royce or the Bentley because it has the logo um, and it has that particular experience. And I don't know if General Motors will truly be able to replicate either of those things. Um, and it's always going to be living with that, that, uh, that, that perception that it has a Chevy Silverado's gear shift and buttons on the dash, which it always will. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Rolls-Royce, with, with the Black Badge campaign, managed to lower their global average buyer age to 43. And in East Asia, it's, it's under 40. And I think these vehicles are going to be playing to younger customers right from the outset. So they've got a maybe more open-minded clientele looking at these things these days. People who are maybe willing to forgive the Cadillac Badge because they grew up watching music videos and movies, including Escalades and, you know, alongside the likes of Porsche and Mercedes-Benz, you know, there was a lot of positive portrayal in pop culture. But here's the biggest thing. Cadillac can pull this off as long as they never let a prospective Celestic buyer anywhere near a Cadillac franchise dealer. They cannot afford to see this thing in a fishbowl alongside GMC Sierras, maybe a showroom removed from Chevy's. If you've ever been inside a modern-day car dealer for a mainstream brand, you realize, especially on the GM side, how wrong that is for a customizable $340,000 base price product. I know they've got a design studio at the Warren Technical Center. It's right next to the factory. Fly everyone who's even vaguely interested straight to that place and never let them see a Cadillac dealer because that will break the spell if they do. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I don't know... I don't think that the the shoppers that they're after, mind you, are looking at the Cadillacs on TikTok, et cetera, in necessarily a positive way. Because if they're if the Rolls Royce customer, even though they tend they tend to skew young, they're not that young. Like the Rolls Royce customer and the Bentley customer, they're in their 40s, which is shockingly young, actually, mind you, lately. Uh, but that generation is not necessarily looking at Kim Kardashian as like, yeah, I want to roll in what Kim's got going on there. When they've got that kind of money, they seem to want to differentiate their, to uh, they want to be their own style setter in their own circle, et cetera. So they buy the Rolls Royce or the Bentley. And I am, I am just curious. Uh, it does not appear that Rolls Royce and Bentley are worried. They, they believe, mind you, when you talk to their PR and marketing people, that the people that they see that are interested in Rolls Royces and Bentleys are not considering Celestic at all. Like this is not in their mind. This is a different kind of person. But especially at something like Bentley, there are two tiers of buyer. I remember back when, you know, the Molson was still on the market, they would say that your Continental GT guy is worth about $3 million. Your Molson buyer is worth about $30 million. 
And that's there's a two tier sort of market. I think that lower tier market is going to be open minded. I also think, frankly, that if you look at social media, TikTok is kids, Facebook is retirees. It's the Instagram generation that they're going after with the Celestic. And I think they're open minded enough that they would consider something like this because they've also grown up in not just the era of the Escalade, but the era of the muscle car as an aspirational wealth purchase. And so at least some Portion but, but that's a very different purchase. though. I mean, you're talking about a hundred thousand dollar aspirational purchase, not a four hundred thousand dollar aspirational purchase, and that's that's a very different mindset, a very different customer. Yeah, but have you seen what you know they charge for Shelby Mustangs these days? A lot of people who are now in their thirties and forties have grown up seeing these auction prices for American cars that have raised the bar in terms of expectations. I don't think they would be shocked if the first Celestic crosses the block with some ridiculous bid price. And, you know, that looks as logical to the person who's got maybe Shelby money, who's got Yenko Camaro money. And this is a younger guy who's grown up very impressionable watching American brands gain prestige in that small circle, because I don't think you're going to upsell an Escalade V-buyer into a Celestic. I do think someone who generally has money and might be a little bit more open minded would consider it. And again, it's 400 cars a year. So yeah. I think they'll be OK. Yeah, that's it's I'm just that's what I said. I'm just curious to see who this customer is because it's not the traditional ultra luxury buyer, which is what Cadillac actually seems to want. They want the traditional ultra luxury buyer, and that does not seem to be who they're actually getting, as as least as far as the ultra luxury car companies are saying. So the other ultra luxury options are like, we're not worried. This appears to be a different customer that they're pulling. I think everything will be fine, which is probably not actually what Cadillac wanted to hear. I think Cadillac would like to hear oh my God, we're concerned because they might steal our sales. Um, you know, there are obviously 400 customers a year out there that have never bought an ultra luxury car that are still worth that amount. But I'm just not clear that that we're going to get good responses when, you know, they roll up to the country club parking lot in their, their Celestic and nobody has heard of it because Cadillac's not on the average person's radar. And then someone hops into it and they go, oh, what's this thing? And they're like, oh, it's my new car. I got this instead of a Rolls Royce. And they're like, how much did you pay for this thing? That's my problem. I'm not sure because of the logo situation. I mean, because the interior in a Rolls Royce or a Bentley is honestly nice, but it's not like it's not 10 times nicer. It's the fact that you have the funkiness and the big, huge Rolls Royce thing, and it's the presence and all of that. That's why people are interested in it. It's that brand thing. And the Cadillac is just missing all of that brand thing. They're going to roll into there, and they might be unfair. They're going to pick it apart, and they're going to go, oh, that's the same shifter I have in my Silverado. But you paid eight, eight Silverados for this. You can find those parts in Bentleys and Rolls, though. You can you can find those hand-me-down it's parts. A, it, you can, but it's a, it's a different... It's a different hand-me-down. When you hand me down from BMW, it's a different hand-me-down than handing down from Chevy. I think younger people are going to be open to it. I think the people at the country club who would like turn their nose down at it are going to have a heart attack when it pulls up because it looks amazing. So you don't care what they think. They're dead. Second, I think for the guy who's maybe like rolling in a plaid or looking at a lucid sapphire these days, his step up from there is going to be the Celestic. He might be going for a very small... Um, market segment of people who have already bought into mega EVs. And this is like the next step up. See, because my problem with the Celestic is up front, it looks too much like every other Cadillac sedan. And the back is just ugly. 
Yeah, but then again, the, the back of the Escalade IQ is ugly too. People only care about the way the, the front of a car looks. People for years have picked apart the way the XKE looked out back, and they restyled the back of the E-Type a million times from the 60s and 70s. The front, other than the scooped headlights, was perfect from the beginning, and it mostly stayed the same. I, I think it's just, it's a car that's going to sell on presence. It's huge, it's long, it's low, it's slung. If you just carved it out of soap without any details or badges, it would look dramatic. But again, that's this is totally subjective. I just have this feeling it's going to end up sort of like Acura NSX sales trajectory, where the order order books were booked for the first year and a half, and they were like, rock on, we have this specialty performance factory that's making this, whatever. And then the sales just fell off the absolute cliff right after about year two-ish or so. Yeah, well, that's um, what happened with the original NSX, too. Yeah, that's so I, I just have this feeling that this is going to turn into that, that oddity as well, where they're going to have a very limited number of people that actually want it. And then it's going to be kind of an odd, an odd duck. Okay. Well, you guys let us know if you're watching this online, comments in the description below. Also, next time we're going to talk about how many sub brands Land Rover really needs. Until then, Alex, where do they find us online? All the usual places. If you've seen the podcast on the YouTubes, be sure and check it out in your favorite podcast platform and vice versa. And we will see all of you next week. Toodaloo.